0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality— You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable.
2: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E. C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com.
1: Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner-Berry, here with executive producer Michael Harlan turkel We'll also be hearing from Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya, the co-authors of Modernist Bread, later in the episode, as we take a deep dive into the grain silo. Two distinct images stick out when we talk about American grain. One is vast wheat fields, amber waves of grain, with giant machines churning through them. And the other is a bag of white flour sitting on a grocery store shelf. Industrialization and the semi-dwarf wheat that was developed during the Green Revolution created this disconnect between farming and flour. Combines and commodity pricing replaced community and cold stone milling. Productivity was prime, biodiversity was bad, and flavor was forgotten. But now we know better. Consumers are rejecting these commodities and rediscovering the foods, flavors, and farmers around us. This episode is about the growing movement to bring back heritage grains and strengthen local and regional food systems. In direct opposition of the green revolution, we're going to hear from the front lines of the grain revolution.
2: William Alexander, the author of 52 loaves, a half-baked adventure, took the dictum of local personally. Very personally. He was baking a loaf of bread every week for a year and on a quest for perfection and endeavor to know exactly where his wheat came from.
3: So I I look at this bag of fluffy white stuff and I would think about pictures of wheat I'd seen blowing in the field somewhere in the Midwest, which is the closest I'd ever been to wheat. And they weren't even the same color. And I, I couldn't quite understand. I mean, I knew flour came from wheat, but I couldn't understand really where it, it came from, how how you got from a grass to this five-pound bag of, of flour. So I thought the, the best way to do this was just to grow my, my own wheat.
2: Taking the idea from scratch very seriously, William and his wife planted winter wheat in their backyard. The process was anything but industrial.
3: Threshing was an experience. It's It's close to the word trash, and for good reason, and And I spent hours. First, we tried uh, I had read, use an old broom uh they gathered the wheat into sheaves and then bang it uh with an old broom, and that didn't even dent it all 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 I did was lose bristles from the uh, from the broom, and then we tried the back of a shovel. and what you're doing when you're threshing wheat is you're trying to free the kernel from the from the chest. And that didn't work. And I finally went down to my shop and got a wooden mallet that I use with chisels. And I just got totally totally caught up in the in the in the whole thing. I also appreciated how hard it is to grow and to thresh and to winnow and to grind your own wheat. Things were, you know, words like winnow and thresh were just words to me. I, and it was, it was just a ton of work to, to do. But in the end, in, in just four garden beds, you know, less than 150 square feet in my garden, um, I ended up with 20 pounds of flour.
2: According to the USDA, the average retail price per pound of flour in 2017 was 51 cents. So William's 20 pounds is worth about 10.20 on the open market. Of that 51 cent retail price, the farmer only sees 14%, or about 7 cents a pound. For the months of growing, harvesting, threshing, and winnowing it took to produce, William would make a whopping $1.40. That cost benefit analysis isn't doing much to entice backyard grain growers. And frankly, the economics of wheat farming, even on an industrial scale, are pretty terrible.
1: That cost benefit analysis isn't doing much to entice backyard grain growers. And frankly, the economics of wheat farming, even on an industrial scale, are pretty terrible. Industrialization and the green revolution led us to this troubled commodity system. They encouraged efficiency through mechanization and drastically reduced the variety of wheat being grown. Semi-dwarf wheat makes up 99% of the wheat grown around the world. The grain revolution, on the contrary, is fighting for biodiversity, sustainable farming, and local and regional connections between farmers, millers, bakers, and consumers. In many cases, it's bakers who are telling that story and getting customers excited about grains. Ellen King is the owner of Hewn Bakery in Evanston, Illinois. She's fueling the revolution, one 100% red Fife loaf at a time.
4: The 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 interior color is so white and we always are like amazed also because we're never 100% confident it's going to bake well, but it always does every time we're shaping it. It's just, like, looser, silkier. It it, it doesn't seem to, like, hold itself bef- while it's retarding overnight, but then when we bake it, it's great. And the flavor of it is, for a whole wheat bread, It's it's I like to say that it's, like, a really silky, um, kind of creamy bread. Then there's turkey red that we do a lot with. It's not my favorite. But my customers love it. They come in for the turkey red because it really tastes like a whole wheat. It's really kind of earthy. It's very heavy, I want to say. And it doesn't have that silky kind of lighter interior that the red fife gets. Um, But it's a big hit. Even though we do it the same as our red fife, it gets the same amount of um, leaven in it. It gets the same salt percent and hydration. Um, It performs totally differently.
1: Ellen sources the flour that she uses at Hewn from farmers in Illinois and Wisconsin. She's even working with the farmers to bring back headliners from grains' golden age.
4: And then, um, then we have like the marquee, and that one's special because that has taken four years working with one farmer to bring that back to just see um, how that is as a bread. And that was a cross between um, hard red Calcutta and red fife. The marquee is really really unique in that it tastes almost like a rye and it's very hardy and very kind of more dense than the red fife and the turkey red. But that's not one we can offer all the time because we're still rebuilding the seed stock with the farmer.
1: The varieties that Ellen is using, especially red fife and turkey red, played a big role in the transformation of the 19th century North American landscape. In the mid-1800s, the U.S. government encouraged settlers to move westward, by offering them land deals and building railroads. The settlers brought their soft spring wheats, and they promptly failed. The climate was too variable and way too dry. Red Fife and Turkey Red are hard wheats, which are more drought-resistant than the soft varieties, and they found an ideal home on the plains.
4: As kind of a failed historian, I had um spent time in archives reading old cookbooks and coming across, like, graham flour and, and different types of things, and I kind of just filed that away. And when I, like, literally two decades later opened up, actually a decade later, opened up the bakery, I, I went and was curious about kind of what was growing in the Midwest, um, you know, even in the early 1900s. And so I met Steve Jones about four years ago at a conference and asked him, you know, what varieties were common around the Midwest. And he had suggested that I just go and spend time reading um, the USDA Farm Journal. So that's kind of what I spent time doing several years ago was reading old farm journals and reading about the varieties that were common in, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Kansas.
1: The original versions of Red Fife and Turkey Red were pushed out by the efficiency of the Green Revolution semi-dwarf wheat. Ellen's background in historic preservation led her straight to them, with some help from the Bread Lab's Steve Jones.
4: But allowing people to understand that in the Midwest, this is where modern industrial farming kind essentially took root, right? I mean, this is where the McCormick Reaper was invented, the John Deere tractor was invented, grains got graded by the Chicago um, Board of Trade. So I really wanted people to understand that we have to kind of deconstruct that process a little bit to be able to get back and have a direct relationship with farmers.
1: It's all about educating customers or training the troops, if you will.
4: I want customers to identify there's different varieties of wheat and there's hard and soft and red and white. Um, But I I also don't want them just getting attached to a turkey red or a red fife because the um, focus for us is to bring back biodiversity. So as we start getting access to more varieties i want people to be like oh i really like hard red wheats i'll try that sure that sounds great i'll let that i'll try that variety or wow i like the white sonora because it's a soft white and that's unique and so it's like teaching the customers that it's that 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 they need to like go out of their comfort zone a little bit because i i don't want customers that are like oh i don't want to eat the red Fife i only want turkey red because that defeats the point of, you know, essentially we become like a mono-crop again.
1: Bakers who are teaching their customers the difference between hard and soft and red and white are literally feeding the revolution. But that's not the only way to get the word out about heritage grains. Regional grain projects, nonprofits that support the farmers, millers and bakers who are working to bring back biodiversity are cropping up all over the country.
5: Crown YC is a nonprofit organization whose twofold mission is to bring fresh locally grown food into the city and make it available to city residents, and to provide local farmers access to this market.
1: The Regional Grains Project started 10 years ago to encourage Grow NYC bakers to incorporate local flour into their baked goods. I've bought a lot of bread at my neighborhood green market. Sourdough from She-Wolf, challah from Hot Bread Kitchen, and it's second nature to stand at a booth and talk about baking. But unlike the tables full of tomatoes, I can't say I've ever seen sheaves of wheat lined up and ready to take home.
5: I think what's pretty unique about grains is that the nature of their production, they're grown and processed on such a huge scale, and they need additional steps of processing before they're ready to eat.
1: Bringing grains into the realm of the farmer's market makes them approachable, and it reminds consumers that they are, in fact, an agricultural product. And some of the biggest challenges facing regional grain systems lie in the day-to-day realities of farming.
5: In the Northeast, it's really equipment and infrastructure that's available. Um, Part of it is the scale of land that's available and having equipment that's suited to that land. But we haven't grown grain in um, any real volume for about 100, 150 years. And a lot of the equipment needed to... Plant, harvest, clean, store, and process uh, these grains is just not, not available anymore. And then on the consumer side, it's just knowledge about different varieties, how to cook and bake with them, and how they can be used to support your regional food system.
1: The focus of the Green Market Regional Grains Project is in the marketplace. You can find Henry at the Grain Stand in Union Square on Wednesdays and Saturdays and popping up around the city the rest of the week. The stand has emmer and einkorn, all-purpose flour, and pasta. He's ready to talk about Magog and impress you with his rye wit. Ask him all of your burning grain questions.
5: Some of the big ones, how is this different from the flour that I buy in the grocery store? Do you have farro? Do you have quinoa? <laughs> the big one is why you know why would we want to buy this over what's available in the store? And is it really different? We saw having a good quality and consistent bread flour as really vital to the success of this this program. And around that, having an all-purpose flour, some just familiar products that customers can swap out with what they're already using.
1: The customers at Green Market are a great place to start because they're already making an extra effort to source their food. They talk to their farmers, and they even shop outside in the middle of winter. And it seems to be working. Green market bakers use 65,000 pounds of local flour a month. That's more than 30,000 loaves of bread and 30,000 opportunities for education.
5: You can talk about flavor and nutrition with some bakers and chefs who are very dialed into those qualities. You can talk about soil and environmental health and water health with folks who are interested in in the environment and ecology and you can talk about how they support local businesses and local farmers and and keep land and agriculture in our region and help support local economies if that's what your customer is interested in
2: these conversations aren't just happening in new york The California Grain Campaign has a similar goal to the Grow NYC Regional Grain Project. 20% local whole grain in farmers markets across the state by 2020. All across the country, in markets, bakeries, and mills, people are making the connection. Mona Esposito, also known as the Grain Lady, is doing her part as a heritage grain consultant in Colorado. She is a co founder of the Noble Grain Alliance, a nonprofit aimed at restoring heritage grains in the centennial state.
6: You know, the core part of being a heritage grain consultant is education and outreach, and really um, bringing understanding of what it takes t- to bring uh, these heritage seeds back into our community and our local grain economies, and to take them all the way through the processes necessary to bring them to your table. So it could be work with farmers, it could be work with chefs and bakers. So it's bringing together all these pieces of the puzzle, or we like to call it the grain chain.
2: It might be 1800 miles away and a mile higher, but Colorado's grain chain has the same missing links that Henry sees in New York.
6: The biggest challenge is with the, it's the infrastructure. So with the modernization and industrialization of grains and wheat as one of the monocrops that, uh, you know, post-World War II, the emphasis was really on yield and production and ease of harvest. So away from flavor, away from nutrition with a focus on grains that could be highly processed, large volumes, uh, So when that happened, we lost the local, smaller infrastructure that's able to deal with the grains. Yeah, so Noble Grain Alliance uh, was founded a little over two years ago. Our work was really to start at the beginning of the chain to restore these heritage grains, so really to begin with the seed.
2: At the same time, Nana Meyer at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, was thinking the same thing. Her research was in the realm of health science, bring back grains for their nutritional value and flavor. And just like Ellen King did in the Midwest, Nana looked at the region's historical documents.
6: So they had been sifting through USDA documents, very detailed documents about the different varieties that were grown here. So that was one consideration. And the other consideration would be uh, seed availability. So out of these documents, maybe there were 20 varieties that they determined would do well, but only two or three uh, had enough seed stock, seed grown out, where we could get our hands on enough seed to grow out an acre or two acres or nine acres. Most of these varieties um, have to go through the trialing process and the building up of seed stock, which could take three to five years to go from a packet of 25 or 100 seeds to enough seed to plant an acre of wheat to 80 or 100 pounds to plant.
2: But the Noble Grain Alliance isn't just building seed stock. Mona is working hard to reintroduce these seeds to farms, encourage sustainable growing systems, and then take it all the way through the chain to bakers, chefs, and consumers.
6: I mean, it's the ultimate local food economy. I mean, it it has been the missing ingredient of the farm-to-table movement and a really important community connection. So really, the, the conversation has to happen between the baker and the farmer, and there has to be this demand for flavor and nutrition, that once was a part, a normal part of of how we grew our food and our food system. I see it working much the same way as it was before industrialization. That there are these relationships between a farmer and a baker, and that the baker goes to the farmer and says, "You know, I'm really interested in in these kind of qualities, and I understand that it's going to be different than what I'm working with, but you know, I'm really passionate about flavor." and nutrition. And so let's work together and let's develop a relationship. And then the farmer being able to rely on bakers and consumers, you know, to take the risk to transition to some of these varieties that they maybe had not worked with before.
2: And what will it take to convince consumers that these relationships and these grains are worth the effort?
6: I think, you know, talking about the story, really, and bringing back the connection to the farmer and to where grains are grown, who grows them, how they're grown, and the entire process.
2: It's an important story, and we'll have more of it after this quick break.
1: Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill.
2: Stone milling goes hand in hand with the grain varieties we're talking about in this episode. Both were popular before industrialization, and both are coming back now as part of our grain revolution at bob's red mill every product is of the highest quality is minimally processed from their stone mill in oregon stone milling keeps the most nutritious and delicious parts of the grain in the mix because the millstones grind at a slow speed and at a cool temperature when i use a product like the organic dark rye flour from bob's red mill i can taste the difference that stone milling makes
1: With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing and fuels the grain revolution. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely, you're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses.
2: My wife and I received a large off-white Dutch oven for our wedding from dear friends that have attended many of our dinner parties. Prior to that, we had a smaller blue brazier, which we love but only feeds a few. With our newfound cookware, we're able to stew beef bourguignon for our Beaujolais Nouveau celebration, which is the Thursday before Thanksgiving, and my wife's super Sundays. since we're really only college football fans, go blue. She makes large batches of soup on NFL game day that lasts us the whole week. It's become a cherished piece of our kitchen equipment that brings our friends and family together over one big pot.
1: Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty, only from La Creuset. Visit lecourcet.com backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with the code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. So far this episode, we've heard from people working to connect farmers and bakers and link up the grain chain. Who better to be the final link than the miller? Jennifer Lapidus is the general manager and principal of Carolina Ground Flour Mill in Asheville, North Carolina. She was previously the owner-operator of Natural Bridge Bakery. But a certain financial crisis, and its profound effect on the commodity market, helped her trade in her apron and headscarf for coveralls and a respirator.
7: Well, the idea for Carolina Ground... Sort of landed on us in 2008 when the price of wheat um, skyrocketed and bakers were suddenly looking at their key ingredient and realizing the disconnect between that and where it came from because the price hike was so profound and it was, um, I think, very much connected to the housing bubble and the rush on commodities and changes in monetary fund policy and, you know, a number of factors that were much greater or much. Far removed from the bakery, far removed from the farm. And at the same time, we actually had some um, bread wheat, some varieties of wheat that could be grown in in the Carolinas and the Southeast for bread, regionally adapted, old school breeding. And so I sort of saw the writing on the wall, connected the dots, got excited about this idea of getting this in the hands of bakers and not just sort of, you know, industry. I didn't want to see the seeds privatized and so I passionately wrote a grant proposal that got in the right hands and we got funding and
1: it eventually became a business. And not just any business. Carolina Ground stands out by cold stone milling regional grains like New East and Wren's Bruzy Rye, producing a flour whose vibrance and quality is recognizably local.
7: We're cold stone milling our flour so most Modern mills um, use industrial roller mills. Stone grinding, you know, of course, predates roller mills. um, And the roller milling process strips away the bran from the germ and the endosperm, the three elements of the grain, and either recombines it or just keeps it separate so that they can isolate that starchy white flour. What we do is keep everything intact, grain in, flour out, so either whole grain or um, we run it over sifters or bolters um, to create sifted product extractions. It's like a whole new palette of flavor to engage with and end tooth, and hue. It's flavor forward. It informs the baker in a lot of ways, whether you're doing bread or pastry.
1: There's a feedback loop forming here. The flour informs the baker. The baker educates the customer. The customer buys what tastes good. And those preferences drive what's planted in the fields. It's a complex system, but not an impossible one. And really, it's all about the flower. I feel like
7: now is the time for flower. Just to momentarily stand on a soapbox and we talk about regional food systems and bringing it back to the community. This is so significant in terms of building sustainable food systems. It's interesting to choose stone over steel to do this because you could you could roller mill flour that grain that was grown in California or Kansas or North Carolina and you wouldn't be able to tell that much of a difference but when you stone grind the flavors really come through and that's really exciting. Stone milling went out of favor when industrialization really kicked in and the realization that we could grow a lot of wheat in the breadbasket area and that um, transportation wasn't an issue and that we could um, you know extend the shelf life by removing the oily germ through separating the bran from the germ, the endosperm, and the industrial roller mill. It all went hand in hand. And so bringing it back to the region means reclaiming this older technology. But, you know, done in for a modern society. I mean, we have our variable frequency drive. We have our pneumatic conveyors. I mean, we're doing this as well as we can within the parameters that we've chosen.
1: Rebuilding these regional systems, making them stronger and more sustainable, harkens back to a time before industrialization and automation. We have more technology than ever before, but the important tools are plain and simple, communication and collaboration. We're not going into this revolution with drones and fighter jets. We're marching in on foot. I mean, a farmer's growing a crop, they want to sell a crop, and a baker needs a specific, um, you
7: know, specific characteristics to that crop, and the miller kind of has to stand in between the two, and translate this to each of those stakeholders. So for the farm end, it's been a longer, slower process on my end to understand the needs of the farmer and for the farmer's end to understand, you know, what our needs are and that, um, you know, establishing a market that is specific to them, that we're, you know, our goal to kind of decommodify this agricultural product and hedge ourselves from the commodities market and exist as like a real agricultural
1: product with distinction. When the communication and collaboration work, there's an aspect of community building that makes the system more resilient. The mill, which sits directly in the middle of the process from seed to sourdough, is a natural meeting place.
7: In our mill, I can see, you know, it's become this sort of democratizing place, this place where I'm seeing both the the baking instructors johnson and wales or folks from bread bakers guild and king arthur and all these different circles and then you're like micro bakery wood fired oven naturally love high hydration backyard baker like they're all on the same page you know and um learning from each other and inspiring each other and the mill is kind of like right there you know in, in that 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 place right in in between, too. We're like kind of the middleman between farmer and baker. I also feel like we're kind of this like wonderful clearinghouse for the bakers as well and like a place to kind of all
1: find common ground. As these regional systems continue to strengthen, and as customers start calling out Red Fife by name, it will be important to have these places for experimentation and education. We've been idealizing and idolizing regional grains. But Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, reminds us they're not always easy.
8: So, I'm all for that. I think that it's it's cool-to-use grains that are from nearby, supporting local farmers, you know, small uh, farms that are not, like, you know, big flour, right? The problem you have with that is that sometimes you don't know what this grain is about, and it's a guessing game as to how much, uh, what, what gluten development properties it's going to have. Is it going to make a strong dough, or is it just going to get in the way Am are going to have a dense loaf of bread or am I going to have, um, you know, low volume? And these are things that you need to think about because often small farms don't have the ability to give you a spec sheet and also not the ability of making a consistent product. So every season, every harvest, the grain would have changed. And so those are the challenges of using these, these specific types of grains, um, and they do add flavor. I mean, it's you can't assume everybody's going to like to taste of vine corn, either, or uh, emmer, or uh, or any grain that was grown nearby, whatever you want to call it.
2: Wonder bread may never embrace a winter wheat, nor sunbeam a white Sonora. but there are ways to incorporate these grains that make them approachable to consumers and to the baker.
8: Thinking as a bread baker, you have to think more in the in the what is going to ha- What is this grain going to do to my bread? And so. I think a very safe approach for this, and this is what a lot of bakers do, is they'll add a percentage of that flour into their dough and utilize 50 to 60 percent of a flour that they know works. Um, so you have this very strong backbone, and it's supporting, it's basically the support net, literally, of the other grain. The other way you can introduce these flavorful grains into a dough is, is by like, literally soaking them or cooking them beforehand. And leaving them whole and putting them into your dough, I think it gives you a really good expression of what the grain is. When it's pulverized, it's very different than when it's whole or cracked, and so the flavor might be a little bit hard to tell once it's been turned been turned into a powder, right? And you know, let's face it, not, I mean, not every grain tastes good, and we don't, we can't just like assume and force this on on just because it's the right thing to do.
1: This new paradigm come from Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, has a history lesson for us. If we're thinking about the right thing to do, there was a time when big wasn't bad, and increasing production, no matter the wheat variety, was a matter of life and death.
9: Over time, there was a big drive to make grain cheaper and cheaper. And the initial reason that we wanted to make grain cheap was really simple, we didn't wanna starve to death. And starvation was a periodic problem uh, for every society on earth uh, until some point in, in the 19th century, and it's even still true for many societies on earth in the 20th century. So we tried to make grain more and more productive uh, that allowed bread to be cheaper and cheaper. Uh, and, and it's one of the things that's very funny about bread is that it has got a position in our minds and in our hearts and in our societies It's unlike any other food. Um, we all love ice cream, but there's never been an ice cream riot in recorded history. Um, but there've been grain riots All the damn time. Um, Governments have fallen. Revolutions have been fought over the price of grain and or the price of bread, which is the first thing people turn grain into. This has created uh, a spiral of productivity in farming that's really quite amazing.
2: That productivity has reinforced the reality that people think grain should be cheap. And it is. Remember the math we did on Williams' backyard flower making?
9: What else can you buy for 51 cents a pound? The big improvements came from uh, three things. The varieties that we grow, the irrigation uh, and fertilization, and mechanized farming. And you can debate which of these was is more important, um, but you kind of needed all of them and they all played off of one another. As soon as one of them got ahead, well, that created a a large incentive to move the others ahead. We also found how to make um, lots of other things cheaply. Um, uh, You can buy a pair of jeans for $20. Uh, If you looked at what it would cost to get a tailor to make a pair of jeans, well, you can do that today and it'll be crazy expensive. Well, we did that with a factory, but we didn't do any factories for the farms, except we kind of did. What we made were these amazing farm machines that drive over the field and do a level of automation that heretofore we needed an assembly line for. Uh, So a combine harvester is this huge machine? Um, they cost like a half a million dollars. And you drive them over a field, and you're you're driving it at three or four miles an hour, uh, maybe a little faster, and you're harvesting all the grain. And it just goes into a hopper and it's ready to truck away. And almost uh, all of the processing has been done. That's a damn miracle. We made the factories come to the
1: farms. And that's where we started messing with the wheat. In order to work in a factory-like farming system, the wheat needed to be as productive as the machines. Individuality was inefficiency Standardization was supreme. And this brings us back to the Green Revolution and its honey-I-shrunk-the-wheat moment. What happened? Why is it so short? Well,
9: this is due to the genius of a man named Norman Borlaug. Uh, Norman Borlaug was a wheat breeder, and he wanted to improve grain productivity. Well, what Norman discovered is you could make, you could breed for varieties of grain that would make the seeds heavier, which would be great, except the weak link in the chain was the stalk. You have this big, tall, head-high stalk with this heavy thing at the end of it, and it would buckle and fall down. And if it buckles and falls down, then it gets wet and the grain's ruined. So he discovered a variety of wheat that uh, had been... Uh, evolved slash bred in Japan that wasn't very tall. And so he said, okay, let's take some high productivity varieties and let's breed it with this Japanese dwarf wheat. And then we can breed even more for bigger kernels. Well, it works spectacularly well. There's a great um, Malcolm Gladwell story um, from The New Yorker that argues that he has saved more lives than any other person in human history. Estimates are up to 2 billion people had their lives saved by Norman. Okay, so
2: Borlaug wasn't Rick Moranis, and the shrinking wasn't an accident. It may have saved lives, but the Green Revolution created a monoculture monster.
9: It's caused a bunch of weird stuff, though, where people say, oh, that this modern wheat is terrible. It's not terrible. It is the culmination of a centuries-long quest to make grain as cheap as we possibly could. And initially, that was so we wouldn't starve. Now, more recently, it's not because we wouldn't starve. It's because we wanted to eat meat. And so we grow a lot of grain that we feed uh, to animals. But these innovations just kept buoying all of the things along with one goal. Make it cheap. Make it cheap make it cheap. Well, you get what you pay for or or what you optimize for. And uh, we have overachieved in the making it cheap.
1: And our grain revolution, with its regional grain projects, focus on heritage varieties, and emphasis on sustainability and education, is a direct response to that overachievement.
9: So, you know, I think, and what I hope is next for grain agriculture is for us to say, look, it's fine to make cheap bread for, or or cheap grain for its purposes, but if we care about flavor, and we care about bread making qualities, we care care about these other things, that needs to factor in also. And that can't, you, you can't point at them and say, they're the ones that have to make this happen. They're the farmers. They're the bakers. They're the industrial agriculture companies. You know, it ha- this is the thing where the system has to work together. Well, I think if we really apply this to grain, we have an opportunity over the next decade or two or, or four <laughs> uh,
1: to have the best bread anyone's ever had. So if you're staring at the grocery store shelf and all you see is commodity flour, don't just sigh. Grab a sigh. Let's take up arms on the side of flavor, regionality, and sustainability, with Red Fife and Turkey Red as our weapons. Give me marquee or give me death.
2: This has been Episode 10 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, The Grain Revolution. In the next episode, we'll focus on fermentation and yeast in all its contexts.
1: Special thanks this week to William Alexander, Ellen King, Henry Blair, Mona Esposito, and Jennifer Lapidus. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkell and me, Jordan Werner-Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowes. Hear more on Instagram at carolclevelandsings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.